This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yes. Carlson, yes. Welcome everybody to another preseason yes. episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. We've got a big episode for you today, everybody. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me is Brian Calm. Hello, everybody. Hello, Elon, and hello once more, Dauber Nation. How does that sound? Wait, Brian, what do you mean by once more? Oh, well, you might know me from previous podcasts such as Dauber Nation, which was hosted on DauberHockey.com, and now we are so excited that for the 2015-16 season, Keeping Carlson is going to be presented by DauberHockey.com. Yeah, it's so exciting. We're so happy to be partnering up with Dauber this season. This is the fantasy hockey resource that I've been using all this time. And now we get to just talk about them on the show because we're partners and they're the best. Like DauberHockey.com, if you don't know it, it's this like fantasy hockey website that has just a plethora of information. Like there's, of course, just articles all the time. Anytime anything happens in the NHL, Dauber's writing an article or someone on his team is writing an article analyzing how this affects fantasy. There's all the standard stuff, you know, starting goalies, line combinations, the things you need to check every day. He's got a draft guide out, this long draft guide that they release so early in the summer with any initial thoughts they have. And then they just release new versions of it all throughout the summer and into the preseason, into the season. So you could go get his guide, all projections for all the players, which again is being updated as more information is coming in. Like this is the place to go for everything. Plus, I don't know, Brian, if you knew this, but did you know Fantasy Hockey Geek, the site that I use to prepare for my drafts, that's also a Dauber hockey site? It is, and I know you have used it frequently in the past, and it is a great draft tool to look at. It ranks your players according to your own league settings, so you're not just looking at standard rankings from whatever platform you're using. You can plug in your own point values into Fantasy Hockey Geek, and it'll rank your players accordingly. Also, Goalie Post, Frozen Pool, which we've used several times in the past, Dauber Hockey, an excellent suite of Fantasy Hockey information, and we're not just blowing smoke. We're totally serious about this. We do use it frequently. I've been affiliated with Dauber in the past, and I am so excited that you and I, Elon, are on board with Dauber Hockey once again. Yeah, we targeted Dauber, hoping to partner with them for the season. They agreed. 
It's going to be awesome. But okay, Brian, speaking of awesome, we've got a huge episode of the podcast today because we're going to be talking about advanced stats. And we did an episode about advanced stats last year around this time. And that was like a really fun intro. But I feel like now we have more to talk about now that we've had more podcasting experience. And you've been, of course, the expert in advanced stats for so long. You've probably been learning all about different advanced stats. I can't wait to hear everything you've learned. But we'll start from the beginning. And maybe a good place to start is like, why are we even talking about advanced stats? So let's get in the head of a regular, non-Keeping Carlson listening fantasy hockey player. And you're drafting your team or you're making a decision on a player to pick up at a given time. How do you make these decisions? Generally, the regular player will look at his league categories and maybe sort people by how they did last year in those categories. Who had the most points last year? Who's doing really well in the past 14 days in the categories that I care about? And then that's how they'll decide whether or not to take a player. And that's an okay strategy, very direct. You know, you want to take a guy who's doing well in the things that you need. But of course, we don't know necessarily if the past will predict the future. And that's where these advanced stats come in, because they can help us get some insight into why the player performed as he did. Like, was it because that's how good the player is and we can expect this to keep going? Or is it unsustainable? Has there been some luck involved or some other reason? And so, Brian, this episode, you're just going to tell us about all the different advanced stats that you like to use in order to make the decisions. And also, you know, that we use to make this podcast. Because Brian, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but he's always referencing all these fancy things like on-ice shooting percentage and points per 60 minutes. And, you know, all these different things that he's using to determine if a player is going to do as well as he did before or as badly as he did before. I'm really excited to just cover the gambit. This is going to be a mega episode. Right. We had a little primer last year on how can advanced stats help me win my fantasy hockey pool. And this is like an updated version for the 2015-16 season because there are some things that we said on that podcast that, well, we're a little smarter now that I think we can articulate even better or really nail down their purpose a little more accurately. And there are some new stats that have been developed over the course of the last season that are at least worth knowing about and talking about. And on this year's edition, we're also going to get into a little bit of how you can actually track down these stats yourself and figure out how to read them. All right. Yeah. So we've got lots to get to. Brian, where do you want to jump off from here? What's our starting point? Well, let's start with one of the most frequently cited kinds of stats on the show. And this isn't so much about one particular stat, but a set of stats Let's talk about rate stats. Normally in your fantasy hockey leagues, you're looking just at counting stats, which is just rote. How many goals, period. How many assists, period. But when we're looking at rate stats, we're looking at how many per 60 minutes. So how many goals would a player score in 60 minutes of ice time? Or how many assists would a player collect in 60 minutes of ice time? Or shots per 60 minutes or points per 60 minutes? and so on. Now, no player is ever going to play 60 minutes in a game, so why does this matter? Well, it matters because rote counting stats just don't tell the entire story. You can have a player who plays 14 minutes a night producing the same amount of points as a player who plays 19 minutes a night, but you won't know the difference just from looking at their rote totals if you're not looking at their ice times as well. What rate stats is going to do is that's going to tell you who is making the most efficient use of their ice time. So Brian, we've actually talked about this a lot on the show, and I'm always a little bit hesitant to rely too much on rate stats. I'm curious if you'll be able to finally convince me otherwise today. Because the thing that I get concerned about is you say a player, I remember last year, and you were right, by the way, you said Thomas Tatar had really great rate stats. And so even though at the beginning of the season, his counting stats weren't that great, you said, keep an eye on Thomas Tatar. He's getting a lot of goals per 60 minutes, I think it was. And I remember I responded saying, well, 
yeah, like he's scoring a lot of goals for 60 minutes, but he's not getting the ice time. So who really cares? Like, why would I want a player on my team who's only used 14 minutes a game? And I guess I'm sort of answering my own question here because I then obviously with Thomas Tatar, he got some more minutes and thus his counting stats went up because he was able to stay as efficient as he was before. And that was a really good hint of great things to come. But of course, at the same time, I always get nervous like to take a player who only plays 14, 15 minutes a game versus a guy who's playing 19 minutes a game just because I know that guy is being relied on by his team. Right. So we're counting on coaching, right? And that coaching will be responsive to a player's production. And the thought is that, hey, if a player is making a real good use of their 12 or 13 minutes of ice time, well, then maybe they get another minute or another minute or another minute. And then by the end of the season, they are playing with the minutes they deserve and their rate stats might actually go down because they are playing more minutes and they might not be able to make as effective use of 19 minutes of ice time as they would 12 minutes of ice time. You know, maybe fatigue would come into play or whatever. But per 60 minutes measures can still be good indicators of who's making the most of the opportunities they're being given. And maybe if their coaches and front offices are looking at those numbers too, who might be in line for a bump to a bigger role. And yeah, of course, I guess a theme of this episode overall will be that you don't just want to look at one stat. You need to sort of get the whole story of what's going on. So I don't know if this counts as an advanced stat, but obviously ice time is another thing you should be looking at in order to get the whole story of how well a player is doing. And so, of course, you're not saying don't look at ice time. That's important. But also you want to see how they're doing relative to the ice time they're getting. Exactly. And that's what rate stats do. They smush rote stats with ice time together to give you a bigger picture sense of a player's production. And Elon, like stats in general, I feel like that's how we should be framing this episode. Like time on ice is worth looking at as much as several of the stats we're mentioning today. Advanced stats scares off a lot of people, but the truth is that ones we're mentioning on this episode are not so advanced. They are easy to understand. And I think it's fair to just call them statistics at this point, but maybe we're being pedantic. Sure, sure. Yeah, I know there's also a lot of people who are like anti-advanced stats for some reason. Like, they'll say like, ugh, what's the point of following that? Like, a goal's a goal. Who cares about all these other things that aren't important? And I think it's interesting because all we're trying to do is figure out what's going on and get a better sense of what's going on. No one's saying that hockey should now be judged by Corsi and the higher coursing team will win the game at the end of the day. It's just a way to determine what's going on. But I know some people have some real aversion to talking about advanced stats or considering them in any way relevant. Yeah, well, the biggest legitimate knock, I think, about these quote-unquote advanced statistics is that they're more descriptive than they are predictive. They're pretty good at describing what's happening and looking back and saying, oh, well, this player has this many points because if you look at their numbers from previous games, da-da-da-da-da. They're not so good at saying, well, we know that this pattern has been established by this player, so we know exactly what we're going to expect in the future. Can't exactly do that. And Nick Foligno last year was a really good example of a player whose underlying numbers made us all really concerned and say the sky's going to fall eventually onto him. And sure enough, it didn't. He outpaced them all year long. So anybody looking at advanced stats as a kind of Nostradamus, you know, tell-all projection system, that's a little misguided. And hey, if that's how you're looking at it, then of course you're going to hate it. But again, we're just looking at drawing little bits and pieces right now that look at what we know that can describe reasons for a player's production and that we can at least make a bit of an educated guess about what might come next. Yeah, if it was too predictive, then there'd not even be a point of playing fantasy hockey because we'd all know exactly what's going to happen. We'd all just run spreadsheets all year. Which I don't know is the hobby I want to have. But okay, 
back to talking about rate stats. I know one thing you tend to do sometimes is when you're talking about goals per 60 minutes, you'll be only talking about even strength versus overall 60 minutes. Do you have a sense of what's better to look at points per 60 minutes, regular points per 60 minutes, only considering even strength? So when you say regular, I'm assuming you mean all situations. Let's just put that into the vocabulary here. All situations, points per 60 means shorthanded, men advantage, and even strength minutes versus five on five, which is just, well, exactly that. It's when there are five players on the ice for each team, not even four on four. We're not just talking even strength necessarily because a four on four dynamic might change how things play out on the ice. Okay. And so why would I care about five on five points per 60 minutes versus just total points per 60 minutes in all situations? I'm so glad you used the word. I was afraid you wouldn't. I think you should care more about five-on-five situations because that's how a great chunk of the game is played. Yes, our fantasy stats count all situations, and I want a player who's going to get, say, those power play points that are counted in an all-situation setting. But if I want to get a better idea of how a player is going to do, let's say if the power play goes cold, or if they lose power play time, or if their team just does not get any calls going their way for a run during the season, that's where five-on-five minutes comes in handy, because so much of the game is played that way. So that's the greatest sample that we have to look at what a player can do. And by sample, I just mean that like the greater body of work we have from a player, the more we can glean from it. So of course, Players play the most time at five on five during the season, so you have the greatest body of work to pick from. Whereas if you're playing on a smaller sample on the power play or shorthanded, that is a little more volatile and susceptible to moving up and down in random ways and not balancing out or averaging out, so to speak. So I think a good example for this is a conversation we've been having on our patron-only Facebook group lately about Kevin Shattenkirk. And one of the patrons was asking if he should make a trade of Ryan Getzlaff for Kevin Shattenkirk. And if you look at last year's numbers, a guy like Shattenkirk is someone you really want. He had 44 points in 56 games, which would be a 64-point pace if he played the whole season. And that basically shattered his career best. Like Before that, his career best was 45 points the season before. Then, like I said, last year he went up to 64 points. And so if, if you think that Shattenkirk can keep getting all those points, then maybe you would want him over Ryan Getzlaff because as a defenseman who gets 64 points, that's more valuable than a forward who's going to give you like 75 points just because of scarcity of his position. And that's more of a draft strategy topic. But anyways, Brian, you made an interesting point because you said that maybe Shattenkirk's 64 points isn't sustainable going to next year when you look at his five-on-five points per 60 minutes as compared to his all situations. Yeah, he was looking for Shattenkirk as an elite defenseman to add to his team. And if you look at the difference between his five-on-five points per 60 and his all situations points per 60, there's like a bump of a full point per 60 minutes. And of course, if you go to all situations, you're going to have a bump because of that power play time. And players generally do score a fair amount more per 60 minutes on the power play than they do at five on five. But Shattenkirk's was a little higher than is reasonable. So that gave us cause to look a little closer at his power play points per 60 minutes and all his other rate stats comparing between five on five and power play. And what we found, and we talked about this, I think a few months ago on the show itself, was that Shattenkirk's numbers on the power play, his rate stats were just otherworldly. Like if you put a list of the top points per 60 players in the last, say, 10 or 12 years in the NHL, on the power play, Shattenkirk's name would be at or right around the top. And that's why he was regarded so highly coming out of last season. And if you look at his counting stats, they match up perfectly. He had 25 power play points in 56 games last season, 
but his previous career high was 25 power play points, one fewer, and it took him 81 games. That's another 25 games to get there. So is it reasonable, just looking at his counting stats, for him to pick up 25 power play points for every 56 games played, looking at what he's usually done over the course of his career? No, and his per 60 rate stats back that up too. You can see a spike both in this season and actually a little spike in his rookie season too, where his success looks kind of like an aberration if you're looking at it in line with the rest of his career numbers. So basically, it sounds like what you're saying is that his great overall numbers last season, maybe too much of it came on the power play in that we can't expect him to do so well on the power play again. He must have just had so many great bounces on the power play. St. Louis just had so many power plays. We don't necessarily want to bank on him repeating based on this power play success. You'd be a lot more confident thinking Shattenkirk could put up a 64-point pace if he had a more realistic power play points per 60 minutes last season as compared to his even strength. Right. And if we're looking at it in terms of concrete numbers, I can tell you, like the three seasons before last year, he was averaging, say, four and a half, a little bit higher than four and a half points per 60 minutes of power play time. Last season, he was just a smidge under seven points per 60 minutes of power play time. So bringing this all back to your question, Elon, about should we look at five on five or all situations? Well, five on five is a little more of a consistent measure than we get from all situations because it includes some more volatile pieces like power play time and to a lesser extent, shorthanded time. Yeah. And of course, this is not to say that we don't think that Kevin Shattenkirk is a great player that you should draft. Like clearly his role in St. Louis increased last year, and that also accounts for why he had more points than usual. But I think you're a lot safer projecting him for like a 50 point pace, which would still be his career high as opposed to a 64-point pace that he was putting up last year. And I'm taking a look at Dauber's projections, and he has Shattenkirk, yeah, right at 53 points, which I think is a pretty fair projection. Definitely a really valuable guy to have in fantasy. That's the same as what he projects for Brent Burns, but he's not going to put up Eric Carlson-like numbers, most likely. So, okay, that was a great overview on rate stats, Brian. What do you want to talk about next? Well, actually, on the same thread with Shattenkirk, not to beat up on the guy, like, I think 45 points seems pretty reasonable from him this year, and Dauber has him up at 53, which is great if it happens. I'd figure he falls somewhere in between. But another reason for Shattenkirk's great success last year was because of his on-ice shooting percentage, specifically on the power play, and you can see a great spike in that too. And we talk about on-ice shooting percentage a ton on the show. So what is on-ice shooting percentage? It is the shooting percentage of a player's team that is registered while they're on the ice. So if a player is on the ice while his team takes 100 shots, including himself, and 80 of those shots go in, well, that's totally unreasonable, but then he'd have an 80% on-ice shooting percentage. What you generally see more for forwards is something between, uh, you know, 8 to 10%, and for defensemen, it's more between 4 to 6%, and of course, some players go up and down because individual shooting percentage does contribute to this stat. But the reason we look at it is to see if an abnormally high amount of shots are going in while a player is on the ice with their team, because if that percentage is a little high, we can probably count on it to come back down at some point over the course of the season. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, this is really to control for the fact that goals are pretty rare in hockey, and it's sometimes hard for a player to control whether or not their play is going to lead to a goal. Like, for example, if you make a really awesome pass that sets the guy up for a great shot, you still don't have control of if that guy is going to 
shoot it into the net and get the goal and give you the assist. But if you have a high on-ice shooting percentage, that means that a lot of the shots that are being taken are going in. You're having great luck. And also if you have a low on-ice shooting percentage, you might be doing really well and still generating lots of offense and lots of shots, you or the other people on the ice, but just maybe they're not going in. And that's a good way to see that a player might be in line for a bump and improvement in their stats. Because if they have a really low on-ice shooting percentage, you'd expect that if it goes up, then the player should go up as well. Yeah, and something that rises and falls in tandem with on-ice shooting percentage is generally a player's assist total or their assist per 60 minutes count. Because like you said, Elon, a player can have control over their own shots to some extent. They don't have as much control over their teammate shots, although some of those areas are starting to be studied about which passes are most valuable and what's the best way to generate a legitimate scoring chance. So players can contribute possibly to a higher on-ice shooting percentage for their team. We just haven't really figured out a way to measure that exactly yet. So maybe to solidify this, Brian, can you give an example of a player from last season who we saw had a high or low on-ice shooting percentage, and thus we were able to predict that they would go up or down in their overall numbers? One player that comes to mind is Mike Santarelli in Toronto, who had a really high on-ice shooting percentage last season. In fact, If you look at a list of players from the first three months of last season who had a high on-ice shooting percentage, it's a lot of really good names. So it's not necessarily a total accident. That's not what we're trying to say. Some players naturally will have higher on-ice shooting percentages than others. But Mike Santorelli's name just doesn't belong in the group of, say, Rick Nash and Nikita Kucherov and Tyler Sagan and Vladimir Tarasenko. But that high percentage for Mike Santorelli led him to 24 points in his first 38 games of the season. And that led a lot of people to want to go add him to their teams and pick him up and think, hey, this is really great free agent acquisition. He's really coming into his own. He's a Toronto Maple Leaf. Let's go for it. But then his on-ice shooting percentage did come back to earth from January 1st onwards. And as a result, he was only able to manage nine points in his remaining 41 games. And you also see on this list a couple lines that drew a lot of our attention at the start of last season. Again, these are high on-ice shooting percentages from the start of the 2014-15 season. And I see all three members of the triplet line in Tampa. And I also see two-thirds of the kid line in Calgary, along with Marcus Granlund being another Calgary Flame who was up there. And that gave us cause for pause earlier in the season last year when we were trying to figure out, are either of these lines for real? And that might be a bit of a counterexample to saying, hey, somebody might come out of nowhere with a high on ice shooting percentage and be able to sustain it for most of the season. Although I would say Calgary specifically really outpaced their underlying numbers all season long. If you look at Goudreau, Monaghan, and Hoodler, those are three guys that I'm a little worried about crashing back down to earth at the start of next season. Not to say that they're 40 point or half a point per game players going forward, but they just might not be able to reach the heights that they saw last season without the same on-ice shooting percentage success that they saw. Right. And I guess for things like on-ice shooting percentage and even just regular shooting percentage, I'd imagine different players are going to have different sort of career numbers, or I guess for on-ice shooting percentage, maybe a line will have their sort of number that they're used to. So you don't necessarily want to look at the overall list of on-ice shooting percentage numbers, but maybe just players that are playing above what they normally do. And that could probably be a really good indication that they're going to come back down. 
Yeah, and like we said, advanced stats aren't predictive. We're not going to know for sure whether or not, but like I said, we can take an educated guess. Now, a player on the other side of the spectrum last season, having a low on-ice shooting percentage to start the year, and things did finally come together, was Anj Kobitar. Elon, do you remember how disappointed owners were to have him on their teams as like an early draft pick, and they were fretting, should I trade him, should I get rid of him? Yeah, I remember there was a patron that we had that said that they were being offered a trade for Anj Kopitar, like a really good deal for him, but he was afraid to take him because he thought, what if he continues to do so badly and he's on the no-drop list of his fantasy platform and he's worried he wouldn't be able to drop him for someone better come the fantasy hockey playoffs, which is kind of crazy when you think about a guy who's perennially a 70-point player. And like you say, Brian, obviously we told him that he should take him, he should jump on the opportunity, and he did bounce back and end the year really strong. Yeah, just 10 points in his first 21 games, which was really concerning. And like, it's so funny to think that somebody did not want Anj Kopitar because they were worried they wouldn't be able to drop him if he didn't pan out. But that's where we were. And that's where these stats can help you sort of take a look and see, look, if there's something weird going on, then there's reason to think something might change. On the other hand, if there's nothing weird going on, then it's blind faith. But with Anj Kopitar, we saw an unreasonably low on-ice shooting percentage. Eventually, it bounced back, and so did his point production. After just 10 points in his first 21 games played, he went on to pick up 54 points in his remaining 58 games. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up Anj Kopitar in that context, because he might end up being a bit of a sleeper going into next year's draft, because he ended the year with 64 points in 79 games, and people might just be like, oh, that's probably what he's worth now. But like you said, if you take out those first 29 games during the remainder of the season, he put up a 76-point pace. So if you can expect Anj Kopitar to be more like he was at the end of the year instead of the beginning of the year, you might get a real steal if you're drafting him as a 64-point guy. Right, and it's not a terrible stretch to think he can do that too because, look, over the last few years, he's been much closer to that pace than he was to this pace from last season. He had 70 points two years ago, 42 points in 47 games the year before. Yeah, so it's really valuable to know that when he had this slump, it was due to a low on-ice shooting percentage. Maybe not even his fault. Maybe he was making amazing passes. LA fans write in and let us know. Maybe he was setting guys up beautifully, and they just weren't able to capitalize, and then things normalized after those 21 games. Right, and let me say, like, we can't definitively say that it was due to a low on-ice shooting percentage. There could have been a 100 factors at play, and this was just the one that we can quantify and know about that we could zero in on and say changed with it. But it can be a good clue that way, at least. And I also just want to drive home the point that context here is key. If you look at players who had a similar on-ice shooting percentage to Anj Kopitar while he was struggling, you're not going to expect all those players to rise in their on-ice shooting percentages the same way Kopitar did over the rest of the season. It's best to look at a player's history and what they've done over the last three or four seasons, what their numbers should be. Each player trends a little bit differently, and you want to know if this player's high on-ice shooting percentage is actually something that has kept up for the last few years, and same goes for a player's low on-ice shooting percentage. You are looking for changes in a pattern. And Elon, I'm going to throw out one more name. We're not going to get into the whole story, but Matthew Perot, when I identified him earlier on in last season, his on-ice shooting percentage was just one of the markers that I pulled from to think that he probably should have been doing better than he was. Yeah, and we all know how that turned out until he got injured, and that was very sad. But let's get back to happier topics. This is really fun. Okay, so we've talked about some rate stats. We've talked about shooting percentages and on-ice shooting percentages. What do you have next for us? Yeah, well, not to totally gloss over shooting percentages, but a lot of what we said about on-ice shooting percentage applies also to individual shooting percentage. If it's a lot higher than the career mark, 
beware. If it's a lot lower than their career mark, consider taking a flyer or trying to lowball for them in a trade. But again, each player has their own set amount, and you're looking at that on a case-by-case basis. You're not just looking at what the league average is and expecting every player to sit around that league average. But Elon, next I'd actually like to move on to a couple things that we talked about on last year's show that might not be as important in figuring out a player's value as we previously thought they were. And the very first one is Corsi, everybody's <gasps> favorite word. NHL calls them shot attempts toward. But if you don't know what they are by now, they are shot attempts towards the net. NHL.com's naming of them is very literal and helpful if you are scared by the term Corsi. But if a shot misses the net or a shot is blocked, that still counts towards a player's Corsi. And there's different ways to look at it. You can look at it as a rote count of Corsi for and Corsi against, or you can look at it as a percentage. So what percentage of shots on the ice were directed towards the opponent's net relative to the ones that were directed towards a player's own team's net. Or you can look at it as a rate stat and see Corsi per 60 minutes. And another one you can look at is individual Corsi per 60 minutes. But first, I just want to talk about why Corsi might not help us a ton in fantasy hockey. Elon, let's say I have a player who, while they're on the ice, has 55% of all shots taken directed towards their opponent's net. And I also had another player who, while they were on the ice, had only 45% of all shots directed towards their opponent's net. Which player would you think you would prefer in terms of fantasy? I mean, I feel like I'd prefer the 55% player since he's getting more shots towards the other net, so more likely to get goals. Ah, but is he getting more shots towards the net or is it just a greater share of shots toward the net? And 55 and 45 are pretty high and low watermarks. If we're looking at actual variance between players, it might be better to look at like, say, 52% to 48%. But not to get too off track here, what I'm trying to say is that a player who directs 52% of all shots towards the opponent's net while they're on the ice might still generate fewer shot attempts than the player whose Corsi is at 48%. Let me put it this way. If the player who has a 52% Corsi has 52% of, say, 50 shot attempts total between both teams while they're on the ice, that's a shade above 25, right? We're looking at 26 shot attempts towards the other net. Okay. But the player who is a 48% Corsi player sees in one game, say, 75 shot attempts total while they're on the ice. And I'm just using random numbers here. These might not be totally reflective of actual in-game totals. But let's say that 48% player is on the ice for 75 shot attempts directed either way. How many shot attempts, Elon, would they have towards their opponent's net? That would be 36. Right. So they see 36 shot attempts for while they're on the ice. Well, that 52% guy sees only 26 shot attempts for while they're on the ice. And this is why Corsi expressed as a percentage or a share of a player's total shots towards the net doesn't really do a player justice in terms of how much offense they actually generate. What you might want to use if you want to look at shot attempts towards is individual Corsi. And I like to look at this on a per 60 minutes basis. This looks at how many shot attempts an individual player makes 
per 60 minutes that player makes or that are made while that player is on the ice? That that player makes on their own. So if you look at the last three years, the leaders in individual Corsi per 60 minutes line up pretty well with the shots on goal per 60 minutes leaders. You've got Ovechkin and Pacioretty at the top, followed by Neal. Evander Kane is fourth in the NHL over the last three years in individual Corsi per 60 minutes, which is a reason we like him more on the show than maybe some of our listeners think we should. And then you've got Rick Nash, Jeff Skinner, Brendan Gallagher is maybe a diamond in the rough there, Vladimir Tarasenko. And then it comes to Tyler Kennedy, who's actually a really interesting case study because all of his underlying numbers have been pretty good for the duration of his career in terms of at least shot generation. But his shooting percentage totals are just so low that it's all kind of negated. All that work he does doesn't really amount to much because he just can't really figure out how to get the puck inside the net. He can figure out how to get the puck to the net, but past the goalie is a whole other story for him. Yeah, I'm taking a look at some of his games from last season, and it's pretty interesting. Like, Tyler Kennedy, for those of you who don't know, he was a player on the Islanders. He was benched for more than half of the games, it looks like. But for the games he did play, he has some games where he played, like, six minutes, but had three shots on goal. And if you work out that shots per 60 minutes, like, you know, if you were to take a player that played 18 minutes, that would be nine shots, which is insane. But yeah, no goals at all. Like he had six goals in total on the season. In, these, in this uh, stretch of games I'm looking at, he didn't score any goals, even though he did take 12 shots. Yeah, and if you look at his individual shooting percentage over the last like six years, you see five and a half, six, 2.8. Then he had a pretty good season last year at the start, at least, with San Jose with an 8.3. And then he finished the year in New York with just a 6.5 shooting percentage in the 13 games he played there. Yeah, I guess, though, the main knock against ever wanting to take Tyler Kennedy in fantasy is you just have to look at his time on ice. He averaged 11 minutes time on ice in the games he played, and he was benched a lot. So, yeah, definitely an aberration there in that list of top shot attempts per 60 minutes. Well, and there are going to be aberrations. Like, it doesn't take long before you get to names like Ryan Garbit or Elon Alexander Semin, who I think deserves to be there, but maybe you don't. These are players who are just good shot generators or shot attempt generators, and it's good to give them credit for that. But if you're looking for a player who can score, you're looking for a mix of factors, but a high individual Corsi per 60 minutes is one good sign that a player will be able to put shots at least towards the goal. And if they're good enough, they'll convert those into actual points. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess that was sort of the start of this whole advanced stats revolution was looking at not only shots on goal, but shots that ended up not reaching the net because of a block or because of just like missing the net. And you would think overall, the player is going to tend to have random results in terms of blocked shots. But in the end, if he's able to put lots of shots towards the net, he'll eventually be able to score. And actually, speaking of the evolution of advanced stats, one of our patrons of Keeping Carlson, Jeff Good, he has a podcast called Not Another Magic Podcast. So I guess about Magic the Gathering, but he did an episode about advanced hockey stats. He had at Garrick16 from Twitter joining him, and they did a really good job talking about the history of advanced stats and how they came into play and how they became relevant and leading all the way to now NHL.com, listing a bunch of these stats, like Brian said. So we'll link to that in our show notes, and you could check that out. And I guess speaking of the patrons, I want to thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson. I haven't done that yet, but I just want to thank everyone who's decided to help support the show by donating $5 a month. And of course, they're not doing it for nothing. We do provide some fun rewards. We have our Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook group, which has, of course, been really busy as the season has been approaching. A lot of people asking about who they should draft or who they should keep in terms of their keepers. We're having a lot of great discussions there. And that, of course, Elon, is the place where... 
patrons can get the fastest answers from both you and I about their fantasy questions. We answer those first before anything on Twitter or Reddit or email or whatever. We make sure we visit that group frequently throughout the day to answer as many questions as we can. Yeah, and it's not only us, actually. A lot of the patrons are really smart and are giving really great advice. Sometimes I ask my own fancy hockey questions there to see what everyone thinks. Yes, that's after you've asked me and didn't like the answer. <laughs> and then aside from being able to join our Facebook group, we also do a monthly patron cast, a special podcast just for the patrons where they could call in. We do it over Spreecast. It's a lot of fun. And then a new reward that we've added for becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson is we're starting our own fantasy hockey league. We've been talking about it all throughout the summer series, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patriot Fantasy League, or the Cuckupful. Or the Cuffle, if you want to go with the silent P, as was suggested in the Facebook group. And I'm kind of warming up to it. I think we'll just keep throwing out acronyms and we'll see what sticks. <laughs> yeah, but that's going to be basically the best league you could be in competing against the best and the brightest of fantasy hockey fans, the types of people who support a fantasy hockey podcast. We're going to have multiple rungs. It's going to be a ladder system. People are going to be moving up and down to determine who's the ultimate champion. It's going to be very exciting. Sign up deadline is September 15th, but if you become a patron after September 15th, you could still sign up. We'll have sort of a waiting list if we could fill up another pool in our league, then for sure we'll do that before we actually get to our draft dates, which are like September 26th. There's still lots of time if you're interested. All the information can be found at keepingcarlson.com slash patron, and we'd love to have you aboard. And again, I'm thanking the patrons, so let me just quickly thank Matthew, Michael, Bryant, Andrew, Ryan, Emil, and Mike, a.k.a. Filthy Animal, as he asked to be thanked on the podcast. So thank you guys so much for signing up. We really appreciate it, and we're going to have a lot of fun this year in the Facebook group. But okay, Brian, let's get back to fancy stats. What do you got next for us? I'm going to continue from the previous set that we were talking about. Corsi is a set that we talked about last year that maybe isn't as useful as we thought it was, at least in the context in which we presented it last year. Another stat that we need to start reevaluating just a little bit, I think, and actually it's not one stat, it's a group of stats that you usually find on usage charts, which are still very useful to understand how a player is being deployed, but in terms of their fantasy value and likelihood to produce, not so sure, it's getting a little muddy, and those stats are quality of competition, quality of teammates, and zone starts. Oh yeah, I remember you talking about how it's really important to know if the player is getting offensive or defensive zone starts in terms of if he's likely to be able to produce offense. Not so much anymore? You know, it's not that it's not so much. An offensive zone start, of course, is still much better than a defensive zone start, although there is some research being done that maybe when players enter the zone on the rush, they might actually have a higher likelihood of scoring a goal, and you can't exactly enter on the rush if the faceoff is in the offensive zone. So a lot matters about what happens after that faceoff. But sorry, getting back to your question, yeah, an offensive zone start is still generally better than a defensive zone start if you're looking at one at a time. But as a group, if you're trying to figure out, well, this player starts, you know, a high relative amount of their starts in their offensive zone, I just not sure that bears as much weight as we once thought. And the reason for that, and this also ties into why quality of competition might also not be as predictive as we had once hoped, is that about 60% of shifts happen on the fly. They don't happen with a zone start. They don't start with a face-off. They happen when a player jumps over the boards and gets into the play. And those sorts of things aren't calculated as part of these zone start measures. Right, yeah, that makes sense. So even if a player, say, has 40% offensive zone starts, it doesn't necessarily mean that 40% of the time that he starts his shifts, he's starting in the offensive zone and 60% in the defensive zone, because a lot of the shifts are starting maybe while the team already has the puck in the offensive zone, and that's just not counting. Very interesting. Good to have an update on that one. 
Well, yeah, and I can even take it a little step further because some zone start calculations don't include neutral zone starts. They just say, well, how many more of any one of the zone starts are in the offensive zone or the defensive zone? And they cut out neutral zone starts entirely. So if you're looking at actually what happens as a true zone start, quote unquote, you're not really getting a full sense of where a player is starting a shift when it is on a face-off because you're only finding out well, of all face-offs that happen in either the defensive zone or the offensive zone, where do these starts happen? And by the way, I should give credit for what I'm saying, or at least a good chunk of it, to Matt Kane, who is also doing some writing for Dover Hockey right now, using analytics to try and determine fantasy value along with Rob Volman, who's another name we've mentioned before. But Matt Kane's site over at puckplusplus.com has a lot of great stuff, and he just did do a two-part series in January about whether zone starts really matter in determining a player's skill level or value if you're trying to take context and saying, well, they start so many shifts of theirs in the defensive zone. Well, some of these articles throw that into question as to whether that's actually really important in figuring out whether a player is good or bad and whether we should be adjusting the rest of their numbers because of that supposed disadvantage or advantage of starting either in the defensive zone or offensive zone respectively. And just to touch on the other two in that group quickly, quality of competition is something that we talk about, Elon. You'd think that if a player is being matched up against the best line from the opposition, that they're going to be at a disadvantage. And hey, you know what? That's kind of true, except it just doesn't happen with the consistency or frequency that might be enough to really impact a player's numbers. If you first off consider that a player plays half their games on the road and half their games at home, that means that the opposing coach can only line match for half of the games. The other thing to consider is the same thing that I just said about zone starts, that 60% roughly of all NHL shifts happen on the fly, and there's just so many moving pieces that you can't just look at who you think that line is going to be matched up against because coaches are always trying to get them out against weaker competition. Well, if it's their scoring line, especially quality of teammates is the other thing that we mentioned. We say, Hey, if a player is playing on the third line with weaker teammates, then they're not as in good shape as they would be if they're playing on the top line with better teammates. And I guess a better example might assume that ice time is controlled. So 15 minutes on the third line and similar deployment to somebody who is playing 15 minutes on the second line with similar deployment, but a huge difference in quality of their line mates. And there is still reason to think that who a player plays with while they're on the ice is still going to affect their success while they're on the ice. So you should still care about who a player has lining up beside them or jumping over the boards along with them in most of their games. Yeah, well, to me, that one's a no-brainer. That's why we pretty much talk about all throughout the fantasy season which players have moved up to the top line or to the second line. If you're playing with Getzlaff and Perry, or if you're playing with Crosby, then you're likely going to have an increase in your chances to get points for your fantasy team. No disagreements there, but kind of a bummer that we aren't as confident in the general usage charts and Corsi numbers that we used to. Why don't you tell us now about a new stat that maybe we don't know about that we can put a lot of stock into? Well, here's one that I'm actually looking forward to playing with and watching a little more closely this year because I haven't looked so closely in years past, and that is IPP, or Individual Points Percentage. And what IPP describes is the percentage of all goals scored while a player is on the ice that that particular player is involved in. So if I am, say, Marion Hossa, 
my IPP is going to show of all goals scored while Marion Hossa is on the ice. On what proportion of those did Marion Hossa manage to register a point? Yeah, and I really like this one. This sounds very intriguing because you could just have bad luck, right? Like oftentimes I remember when I'm watching hockey games and I'm cheering for the guy I have on my fantasy team and he'll pass to one guy, that guy will pass to another guy, and that guy will pass to another guy, and that guy will score. I'm like, no, I guess I didn't get the assist then, even though my player was clearly on the ice and was contributing. And it's good to know what percentage of the time is a goal happening that the player was there for and contributed to was on the ice, but just didn't get a point in the score sheet. And I'd imagine if a player has a low IPP relative to the average, you'd expect that he's just had some bad luck in terms of not getting the points and you'd expect it to go back to normal. Yeah, well, there are averages that we can work with. So the league average for IPP for forwards is just a smidge under 70%. For defensemen, it's just a touch above 30%. So obviously forwards are in on goals a lot more often than defensemen are. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, what we're looking at here is not a rote number. Like you're not saying, well, is this forward at 70%? Oh, well, he's not. He's above it. Well, then he should come crashing down. No, you're looking for patterns to exploit. So you're looking at the player who has had an IPP of, say, 75 for the last four seasons. And then the most recent season, his IPP went down to 55%. And this is a way to, again, sort of look at why a player has failed to produce at their expected rate. This player that I just mentioned, whose IPP went down to 55%, You know, let's say he's 29 years old and people are saying, ah, you know, he's getting old and he just doesn't have it anymore and his new team is not the right situation for him. Well, actually, it might just be a year-to-year aberration and that's something that you can take advantage of. If you see a player whose point totals were out of line in one season with what they've established over the course of their career, look at their IPP and see if it was abnormally high or abnormally low. Now, I'm going to cite a tsn.ca article from Travis Yost that mentioned Yuri Hoodler specifically. Elon, do you think Yuri Hoodler's IPP last year was a lot higher than it usually is for him or a lot lower than it usually is for him? Well, I mean, considering he had such an amazing career year, I'd imagine higher. Yeah, and you're right. If you look at it over the course of the last, you know, six or seven seasons, you see that it was generally around the league average, say 70, 75%, bouncing around a little bit. But there's a great visual. Again, I encourage you to go check out this article over on tsn.ca by Travis Yost. You'll see at the end, in 2014-15 of this chart, there was a huge spike He was in on 90% of all goals that were scored while he was on the ice, which is like 11% more than the previous highest he had ever reached and about 15% more than we're used to seeing from him in even his best years. So yeah, that's really telling, right? Because if you're saying that Hoodler had a 90% IPP and normally he's more like a 75% guy, that means he was basically getting points on 15% more of the scoring plays while he's on the ice than maybe he should have or maybe we'd expect him to be on next year. And if you subtract 15% of his points, he goes from a 76-point player to a 65-point player, which is, of course, still a viable guy to have in fantasy. And that would have still also been his career high because keep in mind his career high before last season's 70 six points was 57 points so yeah he had an amazing season and there's nothing that could take away from that but maybe we should think that he was lucky to get that extra 10 points maybe he played more of a 65 point season and that's something that you need to think about when you're drafting him for next year 
And this isn't to necessarily say Yuri Hoodler is definitely going to come down next year. I mean, it is crazy that he contributed to nine out of every 10 goals that were scored while he was on the ice. But a lot of people might say, well, he's clicking on a line. It just shows really great chemistry with Monaghan and Gaudreau. And you know what? We'll see after another year or two whether that's actually the case. I would tend to think that maybe there is chemistry there, but it might not be quite as good as what we saw last season. Another example, maybe a little less of a flashy one, would be Braden Shen last year, who I think impressed Pulis at times, had some good little runs. He had 47 points, which was actually a career high for him. And if you look at his IPP, he was up at 78%. The year before that, he was at 68%. So that's a 10% jump. The year before, 63. The year before, 61. The year before, 66. Although that was a year in which he barely played at all. So we take a look and see how he saw a spike in his number of total points scored. And then we look at his IPP and say, well, he was in on more goals while he was on the ice than he normally is. Is that something that we think we can continue? Yeah, and I'm taking a look at this list now, and there's some interesting players who had low IPP numbers for last year. Like, if you're saying the average is around 70, there's guys here. I'm seeing Mark Scheifele had only 58%, Jason Spezza, 60%. But remember, Elon, we're not looking compared to the league average for each individual player. It's better to click their name from the list and look at their own individual past seasons, maybe the individual average that they've established. Yeah, okay, good point. I'm seeing Mark Scheifele the year before that had a 63% IPP, so a bit higher, but 58% last year is a bit of a dip. And I think, you know, he's the kind of guy that a lot of people are projecting to have a bit of a breakout year next season. And maybe that's another reason to expect that. Of course, it'll depend if he can make the top six on Winnipeg. And Jason Spezza, who I mentioned, had a 60% IPP last season. That was actually a really big dip because the previous years he had 77, 66, 81, 73. So maybe that puts his 62 point season into context last year and maybe he will be able to jump up next season to more like his 66 or even 70 points that he was able to put up earlier in his career maybe it was just a bit of bad luck for Jason Spezza and another name Elon that shows if you rank by the lowest IPPs amongst regular forwards last year that a lot of people are concerned about and wondering about going into this year Chris Kunitz's name comes up there. He had just a 51% IPP last season. And his career established mark over the last few years is closer to 65. And so this is like a contextual clue. It's like, well, okay, I guess Chris Kunitz is getting older and maybe that's why he's not in on as many goals anymore. Or, you know, he was injured or playing with an injury. Something like that. These are all jump off points to start trying to figure out how to answer other questions. And I also want to point out that a lot of the variation in IPP We look at it not as a totally luck-based thing, but it can tell us, you know, is a player just being a little more or less fortuitous than we can expect? And that's because second assists on goals are generally pretty random, or at least as far as we're capable of understanding, they appear to be fairly random. And IPP would be one representation of a player seeing more or less secondary assists than they're used to getting. And there's really no reason that we know of that they should be getting more or less. And that's why it might fluctuate from year to year or have these really high spikes or these really low valleys. And that's why it's at least an interesting number to consider when trying to figure out what a player might do in the year ahead. Okay, and I guess we're starting to approach the end of our episode here. Definitely a lot to take in, and I'm really curious to see if the listeners are going to like this episode. Of course, you can let us know by tweeting at us at Keeping Carlson. We love to get your feedback. By the way, Brian, we had a lot of great feedback from our Schmore Goalies Borg episode last week. We really did a number. That was our longest episode ever by a fair, fair margin. 
Yeah, we really appreciated all the feedback we got, especially from all the Bobrovsky and Halak fans out there. Yeah, a lot of people weren't so happy with Brian's placing Bobrovsky in the third tier of goalies and not the second tier. And I think I agree. I think I did have Bobrovsky in my second tier. But it's tough. You know, it depends on how well you think Columbus is going to do next year. A lot of people have really high hopes. But okay, back to advanced stats. Brian, give us a couple more before we end the show. Okay, well, I'm just going to give you two quick ones that are available only in one place as far as I know, and that's at waronice, war-on-ice.com. And these might be a touch controversial because they do relate to shot location, which is still in like a tenuous place in the stats community. People are still trying to figure out whether it's something that we really should be paying attention to or if it gets washed out by everything else that's happening on the ice. But War on Ice represents shot location in two good ways. The first, and I think we talked about this last year, Elon, is in their hex tally charts, which are kind of like heat maps to see where a player's shots are coming from on the ice. And you can also see where their team shots are coming from on the ice relative to the rest of the league. So you can see that, hey, when this player is on the ice, their team takes more shots from the slot compared to the effect that other players around the league have on their team's shot generation. And also that applies to specific players too, so you can see, hey, Zenotero takes a ton of shots from just above the face-off dot relative to the rest of the league. So that's one good way to just get a sense. Like for me, it's just interesting to look at right now. I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but it's fun to see. And the other thing they're doing is tallying high-danger scoring chances. And a high danger scoring chance is a shot that comes from, say, the home plate area right around there on the ice. And you can get a visual representation of this over at War on Ice's website. And the leaders in this metric were last year, just for fun, John Tavares led the league, followed by Zach Parise, Steven Stamkos, Thomas Hurdle had the fourth most individual high danger scoring chances last season, which shows that it doesn't necessarily correlate very strongly with points, but it can give you a sense of which players are personally getting the best scoring chances in the league. Yeah, well, maybe this is viable information about Tomas Hurdle. Like last year, he didn't get such a great opportunity on the Sharks. He was often on the third line and he was playing some games as low as like 11, 10 minutes. His average on the year was 14 and a half minutes per game. But maybe if the coach looks at these high danger scoring chances charts and sees that Hurdle was able to generate lots of great chances, maybe he'll get an increase in his ice time and that could lead to more shots and more points. Well, here's the thing about Hurdle and his ice time and his scoring chances. We're going to Call back to something we talked about right at the start of the show. Elon, if we look at high danger scoring chances per 60 minutes... Whoa, that's a really deep stat. Hurdle falls way down the list. And this is actually a team one, though. The last one was individual. This is a team high danger scoring chances stat. And John Tavares is still headlining that list, followed by Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, Steven Samkos, Ryan Callahan. You see a couple line mates here, a little pattern... Bergeron, Marchand, another pair of line mates, Stahl, Burns, Marlowe, Kadri, Voracek, Thornton, Felino, and so on. So this is just another way, and also Warren Ice counts just general scoring chances as well, which makes me realize that I did mess up the definition of high danger scoring chances just a couple minutes ago. Go to War on Ice, see a visual representation of where those high danger scoring chances are coming from. A scoring chance itself counts as something that comes from that home plate area, which you can see as well over at War on Ice. High danger scoring chance is a little different, a little more intense. 
Okay, yeah, I guess that's the kind of thing that you can't really describe on a podcast, so people just need to go and check it out. And maybe since we're talking about that, maybe you could give some other resources of, you say War on Ice for these two stats that you mentioned at the end, the high danger scoring chances and shot locations. What other resources and sites do you use to find the other advanced stats that you've referenced? Okay, so we did say we'd tell you how to find these numbers and how to read them. And really, a lot of this comes from playing around and finding your way through these sites. I can't guide you or make an audio guide point by point to bring you exactly where you want to go. But War on Ice is a great resource. The other one that I use the most is Hockey Analysis, which you can find at stats.hockeyanalysis.com. When you go there, there's a bar across the top where you can choose to see individual players or you can create rankings for players around the league for whatever kind of stat you're looking for. The one thing that you should definitely be aware of when playing around on these sites is the minutes played requirements. You want to figure out how a player is doing relative to other players in the league who play a similar role, a similar amount of minutes. You'll hear me say a lot on the show amongst forwards or defensemen who play regular minutes in the NHL. That's where this comes into play. So you need to make sure that you set a reasonable minimum minutes played to get a reasonably accurate list because you could have a player who comes in, plays 18 minutes all season, scored a point there or a couple points. He might be ahead of a lot of players in points per 60 minutes who he doesn't deserve to be ahead of and he's only there because of having such a small sample size in which he did see success. Okay, so I guess a bit of homework for some of the listeners who want to dig into these advanced stats themselves. This has, of course, been a non-traditional episode of Keeping Carlson, as I guess all of our preseason series episodes have been. Next week, we're going to get back to maybe more of our bread and butter, talking about some of the moves that have been going on since the last time we've talked about that kind of thing. And then, before we know it, the season is going to be upon us, and that's where it's really fun, because every week we put out an episode where we talk about what's been happening in the week of fantasy, what are the headlines, who are the players who are doing really well that you need to jump on, who are the players who are snoozing, and it's time to drop them from your lineup. So if you are not subscribed to Keeping Carlson, now is the time to do so on whatever podcast listening device you use, be it iTunes or whatever. I use Pocket Casts on Android. They're not paying me to say that. I just kind of like it. And before we close out the show, Elon, I'd like to encourage any of our brainy listeners to let us know what stat they think is really important in figuring out a player's fantasy value to their team that might not be amongst the usual categories that are counted in fantasy stats. Let us know. You can tweet us at Keeping Carlson. And I also want to know if we got anything wrong. I'm not above making mistakes. It could happen. Let me know if I said anything ridiculous here, too. Yeah, people generally aren't very shy about letting Brian know when they disagree with what he's saying. So please keep that coming. Like he said, at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. I always like to ask for a five-star review on iTunes. If you'd be so kind to do so, if you haven't done so yet, doesn't cost you anything, helps out the show a lot. I've talked about being a patron. It's not too late to sign up for the Cuckupful. Sign up deadline September 15th. Get all that information, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. With that, I'm going to cue up the outro music. And Brian, you've already said a bunch of credits, so what do you want to say in your time right now? Well, I'm going to absolutely say that we are proudly presented by DauberHockey.com, and research for this show was done with help from DauberHockey, PuckPlusPlus.com, TSN.ca, Hockey Analysis, War on Ice, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Great job, Brian. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you all with another episode next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sons.